Good morning and welcome. This episode is about to get started. But before that, a few things you should know. First of all, this show is brought to you for free. To support, please consider sharing the episode with your friend, leaving a great review or signing up for my bi-monthly top five email. What is it? It's a free email that I craft twice a month and send out to thousands of you where I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also gear and tips and things I've been thinking about lately that really impacted me in a way. If you too want to join in on the fun, please visit ptl.fm forward slash top five, T-O-P five, and you will be in for the next edition. Now, last but not least, all podcast show notes are available at ptl.fm forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for being here and let's get started. Good morning, podcast, and welcome to the Pietti Lambert Show. I hope you're having a beautiful day and that you're ready for another episode. Today, we've got a special guest, actually very special, because we actually met when we were maybe three years old in kindergarten in Germany. The story is fascinating. My guest today is Nima Etminan, and Nima is an incredible character because knowing him from when we were four until now... There's been such a crazy story. Currently, Nima Etminan is the CEO of Empire Distribution Records and Publishing, an American distribution company and record label founded in 2008 by Ghazi Shami and headquartered in San Francisco, California. Empire is predominantly focused on hip-hop music and has helped release the music of notorious artists like Snoop Dogg, Kendrick Lamar, Temptation, Young Dolph, Olamide, and many more. I'm sure you've heard of some of those tracks. Nima arrived in San Francisco 10 years ago from Germany after interviewing and writing about West Coast rap music since his teenage years. We'll talk about it in a few seconds and how he actually got there. Because when you're a kid, you never imagine seeing one of your buddy on a photo with Snoop Dogg. And the day that happens, you're like, wait, what did I miss here? What happened? So Nima, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You also don't expect to see your childhood friend with like, 200,000 Instagram followers because of <laughs> pictures that he takes. Yeah, it's definitely impressive on both sides. That's the best thing I love about life is like, when you're that young, you have no clue what's going to happen. I wanted to be a garbage man truck when I was a kid. What happened? I don't know. I think I got lost on track. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, but there was a big gap of like how long that we didn't see each other too. Like we saw each other when we were kids in kindergarten and early in school and then we didn't see each other until we both had left Europe, right? And then reconnected. I think the last time we met in Germany was probably 10 or 11. Yeah. Something between 8 and 11. And then the next time was maybe 27, 28. I came to San Francisco and that's when we met. Yeah. And when I had moved there maybe a year before or something, we were still in our first office, I remember. Yeah, and I remember I was like, wait, what are you doing exactly? So you're going to tell us the story because I think it needs a lot of context. One day I'm meeting one of our other childhood friends and he's like, oh, have you heard what Nima is doing? I'm like, no, what's happening with Nima? And he's like, because we're talking about everyone we know, you know, and he's telling me about that person and that person. And everyone was like fairly traditional in a way. And two people came up. There was you and another friend, Sebastian. And yeah, Sebastian is that famous entrepreneur in tech who like had an exit as like millionaires or whatever, like in that tech space, he is in the Bay. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. But it wasn't too crazy because it felt natural at that time to for him to go in that direction in a way. 
in the computer space. But then we're like Nima. And I remember you as a kid who loved literature, who loved so many different topics in life. I was playing with Legos and you were reading some really interesting newspaper at the time. Yeah, I was a nerd. I was a nerd for sure. Still a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and then my friend's like, yeah, I've seen Nima is on photos with Snoop Dogg and I think he's doing something with rap and I don't know exactly. And I'm like, wait, what? Okay. And that triggered, I was like, oh my God, I'm on my own like weird journey. I absolutely need to connect with Nima whenever possible. And that happened, I don't know, a few years after. Nima, what happened between us being kids in Germany in the French school and you working with the top rap artist in this world? I guess life happened. I think I always had a tendency to dive deep into topics that I was interested in. When I was a kid, the earliest thing that I remember being really into were dinosaurs, were the World Cup and the Olympics and things like that. And I always found myself diving deep into those topics and being interested in the history and the numbers and the statistics. And I like playing with dinosaurs, but I also knew everything about them from which dinosaur, where, when they lived, how long ago they became instinct, which one ate what, who was a predator, who was a carnivore, who was a herbivore. Like I dove deep into those things. And I think I... And grew up having a wide range of interests, and my parents had me doing a lot of different activities. I played piano, I played drums, I played some sports. You know, I was really into video games. But when I liked stuff, like you said, I always liked to read about it. I always liked to know everything about it. And the first thing I wanted to do was be an archaeologist and go find dinosaur bones when I was little. That's the first thing I remember I wanted to do. And then after that, it was always something with computers but I didn't really know what. And I think once internet became more accessible and I somehow fell into this passion of finding music, reading about music, and specifically rap music, I think I somehow had tunnel vision and a lot of other things in my life became less important and I just really dove into it and... I haven't really stopped or slowed down since I was like 13 or 14 when I really started to de develop an interest for it. And I came in at a time where the whole music industry was in a huge shift period. The internet was becoming a thing. Music downloading became a thing. File sharing services, music blogs, social media then came, and then obviously streaming and everything. So the entire industry was flipped upside down. And I feel like I was exactly that generation that caught the tail end of the traditional world and then entered this new world as we know it now. And in between, there was a period of 10 years where the music industry was in shambles. Piracy was at an all-time high. Streaming wasn't a thing yet. And you couldn't, it was hard to make money with music. You had a whole generation that grew up accustomed to music just being this free thing that you download on the internet and don't actually pay for. And I think these shifts, when things change and there's shifts, oftentimes it allows for new things to happen and develop. And I think a combination of hard work, maybe some right place, right time, maybe some luck, maybe some 
perseverance. My path somehow has led me to being here now. I've been in San Francisco for 11 years. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very, very short version of what happened between now and then. That's awesome. There's a few things that stood out to me in the story. And the first one is during that shift, like I remember specifically like what you're talking about, the piracy, everything. We all had Napster and then LimeWire or whatever. Like I still have libraries of music from back in the days, you know, and it's true that it wasn't organized. It, it was a free for all or like we're trying to, to find ways to, to get the music. Why that genre of music at that age? Do you remember specifically what got you to move towards more rap, especially because I remember we're in Germany, at least, and even in France, the rap was very different from what I would hear and here in the U.S. You know, the U.S. rap and I feel like German rap or like French rap was, I don't know, it felt different to me when I would listen yeah. to it. One felt cooler than the other, definitely. I don't know if it's the language. So I was always curious, like you being passionate with archaeology and all those things, how did rap enter even the picture? You know, I still don't know if I have a real answer to that. I've thought about it a lot. It's something that's come up in conversations, and I don't know. It doesn't really make sense. I'm a child of Persian parents, born in Iran, grew up in Germany, went to an all-French school, no relation to African-American culture, no relation to rap music, none of that. And for me to have made that the center of my life and doing this, I, I don't know if I have an exact answer for that. I think that... I got had my first experiences with rap probably from older cousins, older friends in school who had like maybe CDs. But I think a lot of it was the fascination with what seemed a little forbidden. It was the cursing. It was the controversy, the, the provocativeness of it. I didn't feel like I understood too much English at the time, but I understood fuck, bitch, shit. And I was always a good kid. And I don't know what it was, but it was always like, a fascination with it very early on. Like I would sit and watch music videos on TV for hours. And back in the day, it wasn't YouTube. So you didn't go and pick what you wanted to watch. You turn on MTV and over the next hour or two, you were going to see anything from pop to rock to rap to everything was mixed, right? It was just popular videos playing. And so obviously I was also a part of the generation that grew up with Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and NSYNC. And then also had, the rock phase, the Lincoln Parks, the Limp Biscuits, all of that. So I feel like in school you had different cliques. You had like the angry German kids who like Marilyn Manson and Korn and stuff. And our school was a French school in Germany, which made a big difference because we were such a melting pot of cultures. So many different nationalities. Like the Germans were in the minority. and Sometimes even the French, you had all these different influences and cultures together. And... When Tupac died in 1996, I was eight, I was nine years old. And I remember we were coming back from like a family trip and I saw the news about it in the newspaper. And my uncle, who was probably in his like late teens at that time, he, he had the, the greatest hit CD that came out after. Like it was a burned disc. It was like we're able to burn CDs and you would buy all these empty discs and you could burn CDs, which is how I made most of my side money in high school later was burning movies and CDs for people and stuff like that. But I remember that CD and just listening to it. And I didn't really necessarily know what he was saying, but I was just, I was just really fascinated by it. And I would go to the CD stores and try to find more things like it. 
I don't think I had too much access to anything because at that time in Germany, what did you have? You had a CD store. I was too young to really go to concerts like that. You didn't have like that much, but I think it wasn't until I started using the internet myself and found all these message boards on the internet where you had other kids from around the world who were talking about the same stuff. And that's where I really got hung up on it. I think I found these communities on the internet with kids who would talk about rap music, but in such an in-depth way where it's everything from the culture and the backgrounds and this, and it just dove way deeper than like the surface level, just listening to music. And I started like collecting music and downloading and trying to complete like my library. Like it used to be dial up and you pay per minute, but then there was this new feature that came from an internet service provider where for a few dollars or a few euros or maybe marks even at the time extra, you could get the Sunday with flat rate. So Saturday night, midnight to Sunday at midnight, you had flat rate internet. I would be ready at midnight. I would go on LimeWire, BearShare, whatever it was, and start downloading for 24 hours. And then I would listen to this stuff all week. And it was just fun. I had taught myself how to code like basic HTML, like very basic, but I had a website with a list of all the songs, like the rare songs, because you would like on the internet find like stuff that was hard to find and like traded. Like there were all these communities that would like, that stuff still happens now it's just on Discord and like other platforms and stuff like that. But people would trade songs and then I became obsessed with collecting CDs. I wanted to own the physical CDs and it was hard to find in Germany because you had import stores that were expensive, but a lot of times it was just the big stuff that you would find. And I just became obsessed with all this underground stuff that was so obscure that no one ever even heard of it out there. But I don't know if it just became something that I did. And there was this message board that I became a part of. It was about West Coast rap music, but most of the kids on it were from all over the world. And I became a moderator. So I told you I was a nerd. This is how nerdy this story is. Became a moderator on the message boards. And then after, I think after Eminem blew up, around 1999 or 2000, I was like 13. We all thought that we were too cool for that because all these new kids who listened to Eminem were like flooding the message boards now. And a couple of us separated and there was like a new message board that came for like, not for the kids, even though we were like 13. And one of the guys who was in the UK, he, him and another guy who knew like how to code and stuff like that, they had the idea of creating like a news website that, would be attached to the message board where they would write about music and things like that. And at the time, like I said, I was way younger, but I wrote a lot and I started writing all of this in English, which was also weird because English was my fourth language. But I always had this weird obsession with English. I remember being a little kid and playing with my action figures and my dinosaurs and I would make up a language in my head that in my head sounded like English. American English. And, I always, and it was always with America. I hated the UK accent. I remember in school, in English class, our teachers in Germany, they all had British accents. And I refused to respond in a British accent because I wanted to speak with an American accent. And I was writing my diary in English when I was like 14. And it doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm a kid of Persian parents. I spoke Farsi to my dad, French to my mom. We lived in Germany. But I wanted everything to be in English. Like I was the first kid that wanted to watch movies in original language 
with subtitles. And my friends would be like, what the fuck is subtitles? Just watch it in German. And I was like, no, this is not how it's supposed to sound. And I was writing like reviews of albums and articles about albums that were coming out and stuff. So when they were going to launch this news website, they asked me if I wanted to be a part of it and be one of the editors and writers and stuff like that. And that's what ended up becoming Dub CNN at the time. That became what I did for years all through high school. You know, I spent most of my nights writing about music. And this is before social media existed. So this is before Web 2.0. So we started in like September of 2002. There was no MySpace yet. There was no Facebook. There was no YouTube. There were no platforms for artists to themselves communicate to the world. And there was no such thing as like just putting music out on the internet like that. You had to have a server. You could upload a link and people could download from that link. But like if more than like 10 people hit the link, like it would get overloaded. And it was very different times. But music websites were a much more important part of the news cycle because there was no other way to get news out there. There were magazines and TV, but all that stuff was slow, right? It took a long time to get something out there. And that's how we grew up. You bought a magazine once a month and you waited until the first of the next month to see what this article was going to say, right? seems so absurd now in this instant gratification culture that we live in. But I don't think we realized, obviously, any of this at the time. We were just kids doing what we were doing. But the guys in the UK that originally had, like, the idea for the website, they started contacting, like, all these other label websites and any other music websites. The word blog didn't really exist yet. All these other pages to let them know that there's a new music website for West Coast music called WebCNN and connect with them and stuff. And we started like getting on these mailing lists and maybe a few months after the website started, not even a few months, like a month and a half after the website started, I got an email from Interscope Records, which is a sub-label of Universal, one of the biggest labels. And they said that they were developing a new artist named 50 Cent. And whether I wanted to do an interview. And I already knew all about him because, like I said, I already knew that Dr. Dre and Eminem signed him. Like, I was really excited. Like, I already knew all this stuff. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. I would love to interview him. Mind you, this is like right as I'm turning 15. My voice is still a little crackling. Like, I don't even sound like a man yet. I have accent when I speak. And they probably thought I'm a journalist who wants to do this interview. So these were phoners. And I remember this first interview with 50 Cent. What we would do is when we do interviews, I would go on our message boards and I would say, hey, I'm going to be talking to such and such. What are some things you guys want to know? And the message board had maybe a couple thousand members or something. And they all like would send stuff that I should ask. And that's how I would construct my interviews. And this was when calling international, like you can, the U.S. wasn't calling Europe casually. And for me to call the U.S., I had to buy these data packages so that I could call and I had a computer mic. I would take the house phone from my mom. I would put it on speaker. I would put the computer mic in a coffee mug, have the mic like hang above the phone. And then I would lean over and I would connect. The mic would be connected to the little audio recording thing on the computer. And I would hit record and I would do the interview. And then I would spend hours transcribing it. I would transcribe everything, which nowadays is also not a thing anymore because people listen to audio and video and I would try transcribe everything. I would have two hour conversations where I would type out every single word. And then we would put up these interviews and one of the first ones was 50 Cent. 
And that was right before he blew up. And then when he blew up on his website, 50cent.com, the first thing on the website was my interview that I did. And from there, it just slowly continued on getting more and more contacts with artists, doing interviews. But because I was such a fan, I think that's how I was able to build a lot of these relationships because I wasn't a journalist. Like when I would get on the phone with somebody, I would know so much. And the way that I would talk to them, it usually led to like the relationship staying after them giving me their number. Or I think I was just so excited to be able to peek into this world or get access to it. Mind you, I had never been to the U.S. before and stuff when all of this started. And from there, it was, okay, this is all I want to do. I don't know if I was going to be a writer. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew I wanted to be something in music. I was still in school, obviously. School started to suffer. I almost didn't finish high school. I like failed my high school finals and I had to go do the catch-up exam. Barely was able to finish high school because I was spending most of my nights doing interviews, writing. Like, I was just in a different headspace, in a different world. And the website started to get bigger and we started to get access to more stuff. But I was still a kid. I think I always knew Snoop Dogg was somebody to me. Like, he was the pinnacle, right? For our generation, Snoop was the coolest guy in the world. And I never even thought that would be possible for me to build a relationship with him. But I was just excited about I wanted to interview his DJ. I wanted to interview his backup dancer. I wanted to just talk to different people involved. And I remember I was in Montreal visiting my aunt when I was like 14 and he had a concert there, him and 50 Cent, I think we're on a tour together. And I didn't know anyone like that yet, but I knew what hotel they were going to be. I don't know how I found that out, but somebody, somebody knew what hotel they were going to be at. And I just went and just sat at the hotel until the tour bus came back and ended up talking to Snoop's DJ, who happened to know the website already, took some pictures with him. I met Snoop's brother. I met Terrace Martin there, who was one of his saxophone players at the time, who now is like one of the biggest producers and has done stuff for everyone from like Kendrick to a lot of other people, but ended up doing that. And then I think we took a picture with Snoop there. I saw the picture. I didn't talk to him or anything like that. It was just like, okay, I was there. And then I think for them, it was also weird to see this like kid from Germany who knew all of this stuff and was so into it or whatever, but Snoop had a concert in Cologne, Germany in 2005. And I think he had two concerts, one in Amsterdam and one in Cologne. I went to both, which in 2005, I was 17. And two of the other guys from CNN, one of them was in Switzerland, one of them was from Sweden. Like I said, we were all from random places. We met up in Amsterdam, went to the Amsterdam show, then took the train, went to Cologne. And at the time, like, the website was starting to get a little bit bigger and we were getting bigger, bigger interviews and things like that. But I knew Daz, who was Snoop's cousin, who was one of the guys from the group, The Dog Pound, that was always on tour with Snoop and he had been with Snoop since Snoop started. He had gotten me tickets to the show in Cologne, but he wasn't on that tour, but he had connected me with Snoop's manager. But Snoop's manager obviously didn't really know who I was or anything like that, but at the concert, I had my camcorder with me because I used to film everything. I used to film anywhere I went, I would film. I had my camcorder with me. Yeah. First vlog. Well, I mean, that vlog wasn't even a thing yet. <laughs> I know. That's like yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wanted it for myself. And we're at this show and I'm filming 
from like the balcony. And all of a sudden I just feel this like big hand of a security guy. And he's like, you're not allowed to film in here. He takes my camera and walks away. And I was like, this is my, this is my camera. Oh my God, like what's going to happen? I follow him and I'm like, I need my camera back. I need my camera back. And we're in this hallway and Snoop's manager is there. I didn't know this was Snoop's manager at the time. It's a Korean guy named Ted Chun, who I'm obviously good friends with now. But he was like, what are you doing? He was like, you're not allowed to film the concert. This is before everybody had a cell phone camera. Everybody was filming anything anyway. Like it was, you weren't allowed to just film like that at a concert. And I was like, I'm really sorry, blah, 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 blah. And he like cool about it or whatever. And then I said, hey, I really want to interview Superfly. Superfly was Snoop's hype man. He was the guy that was, you know how rappers are on stage and there's another guy on stage who says some of the words and stuff like that. He was the hype man, but he also made music and I knew everything about him, but no one in Europe knew who Superfly was and no one ever asked to interview Superfly like that. Like, and he was like, you want to interview Superfly? And he was like, okay, meet me here after the show. I was like, wow, I'm going to interview Superfly. And we prepared like these questions in our heads and stuff. And we go do the interview with Superfly. And then as we're like walking in the hallway, this is after the concert, Snoop walks by us. I just said, Snoop is dub CNN. The manager already looked at me like, shut the fuck up, like little kid. <laughs> and Snoop fired me and he turned back and he said, dub CNN? My cousin Dad always talks about you guys. Meet me in my green room in 10 minutes. And the manager was like, huh? He was confused too. But this is one of those moments where it's just, so many things coming together. I don't have my camera there. If I don't go to both shows and then have my camera and then get caught and then ask to interview the other guy. And then, to me, that is like, a, is like a very good example of how life works where you can't pre-plan these things. You just have to like do stuff and sometimes it happens, right? So they put us in this like other room for 10 minutes. So we prepare for this interview. When the interview is on YouTube, I'll send you the link, but we prepare for this interview for 10 minutes on what to ask him. And mind you, I'm like so nervous, like I'm about to talk to Snoop Dogg for the first time. And then we go into the room and we did this interview, like a 10 minute interview and we put it out. And I remember like walking out of the venue and the three of us just started hugging each other and like jumping up and down, like, yo, what the fuck just happened? And then put that interview out. And then from there, I didn't have his contact. So there was just one interview, but I knew at this point that he knew like what Dep CNN was and this and that. And I started, the Snoop Dogg interview came out and stuff like, I would do 10 interviews a month, like every other day. And it was consistent. The website at one point was having like 30, 40,000 unique visitors a day. And it was getting big. And at the time I didn't realize why it was working. Now I understand it because if we had just been a regular hip hop website, it never would have worked because there's many of those. But we focused on a niche that we were interested in, which happened to be West Coast rap music for whatever reason. Like I said, I still don't know why it was that, but West Coast rap music was not mainstream and not the popular stuff at the time. But to me, those were my superstars and my heroes. And there was a lot of fans and a big lot of people that were still really into that. And I think we provided without realizing it like an outlet for a lot of the those artists that were maybe getting ignored by like mainstream media and stuff like that. And we treated them like the superstars. And when I was 16, I finished high school, like I said, barely. But when I was younger, I was a smart little kid. I skipped a second. I skipped. So this is interesting. This is where we left path because we're in the same class and you skipped a class. I just stayed where I, in the normal path. So you skip one or two? 
I went from second grade to fourth grade. So I never did third grade. And in France, school was 12 years. In Germany, it was 13. But our system was French. So it was 12 school years. And we started school at six, which German started at seven. So we started school earlier and school was shorter. And I skipped third grade. So I finished high school back when I was still 16 years old. And to this day, like when me and my mom talk about it, she doesn't understand how she ever allowed me to just go. But after high school, I finished my back and my diploma and me and then my friend Yash from Sweden, who was a little bit, he was like 24, I was 17. We flew to LA and he stayed for three weeks and I stayed for like two months. First, we went there and we had booked our hotel like online. Like this is before you had Yelp and TripAdvisor and stuff like that. And I saw that there's a hotel on Hollywood Boulevard. Mind you, if you don't know, you think that Hollywood Boulevard is like it's a beautiful place because it's called Hollywood. You don't know that Hollywood is like a dirty part of town. And I was like, oh, Motel 6 is cheap at 40 bucks. I didn't know that Motel 6 is like the lowest that you can go as far as like motels and stuff. So I've we, had the same experience as you with motels. So. Yeah, we stayed in the Motel 6 on Hollywood Boulevard for the first three weeks and basically had our first like experiences in LA, going to different studios, starting to meet up with a lot of the underground artists that we knew from doing interviews and stuff, but no one really too famous yet. But to me, it was almost like all of a sudden being in the middle of your favorite action movie or something like that. Like all these places that I had listened to in music for so long, all these streets, restaurant names, like I knew a lot of the places and stuff, even though I'd never been there, everything was somehow related to the music. Like I knew the first Snoop Dogg music video where he was dancing on top of the VIP record store in Long Beach. So I was like, I want to go to the VIP record store and see that place and the street names. And when I think back at it, it was definitely very dangerous for us to just go out there and do that. But when you're that young, it comes with a certain naivety that allows you to even do that. And then I ended up sleeping on couches of rappers that I knew there and I stayed with this guy Frank Nitty and then the artist Badass and they just let me stay with them and took me everywhere with them and took care of me and I didn't really have any money left like that somehow just took me in they're like yeah this this, this is Nima this is Deb CNN and they obviously saw value in me because I didn't realize how much of a value I was either. I was a kid. I was like, oh my God, these guys are like my heroes or something like that. And now I'm like hanging out with them and stuff. But to them, it was also like, yo, the guy that has all this influence because of like his website, he's like our friend. I was out there and I went back home and all I wanted to do was just go back. And my mom was like, no way. You got to go to university. You have to get a degree. You can go to America whenever you have free time, but you have to go get a degree. So that's how I ended up not like leaving right away. I stayed and because my high school diploma was so bad in Germany to get into university is dependent on like the grades that you had and stuff like that to get into the courses that you want. The only thing I got accepted in was French literature studies. So I did my bachelor for three years in French and American literature studies. As you said, I used to like to read, but by the time I was that age, like that was very far from what I wanted to do. But I knew I could do it because I was native French speaker and it was doable. So I was in school getting my bachelor's by day and then running up CNN and the rest of the time and doing that and waiting. And then I knew that there was a master's program at a private university called Hamburg Media School 
that I was going to start saving up for. And that was a media management program that had music in it and it was a master's. So I was like, okay, cool. I did three years of literature with the goal of doing that in mind. And ironically, the year that I started at that media school, they removed music from their program because they said, you can't teach how to make money in music anymore because the music industry is in shambles. So I did two years of a master program in media management about everything except for music. Oh God! <laughs> I still wrote my thesis about music. Everything that I did on my own was about music. But honestly, I did five years of had nothing to do with anything that I wanted. But I appreciate the, the discipline that it gave me and the accountability and learning how to work in groups. And I think you still gain a lot from it, but not like the actual subjects and stuff like that. But at that point, I still hadn't really built like an independent relationship with, with Snoop yet. But one day I had gotten an email forwarded from someone that I knew. And in like the forwarded emails where you could see like, and it was like one of those emails where it's listed like everyone, but they like didn't BCC, they like CC'd everyone. I saw an email address and it was cbroadus at tmail.com. And I was like, Broadus is Snoop's last name. Calvin is his first name. Cbroadus at tmail. Maybe that's Snoop Dogg's email. Because T-Mail at the time was a sidekick email that went to your phone. It was before like texting became like a thing like that. And I was like, this might be Snoop Dogg's email because it was so random. So I just sent an email to that email and said, hey, it's Nima. I just introduced myself again. And he responded and within two minutes and said, call me with a phone number. <laughs> You're like, uh, wait, what? <laughs> and I still wasn't fully sure if it was him or not, but it just felt real. So I got all my recording stuff ready and stuff, like my little mic and the, and the coffee mug and stuff. <laughs> and then I called the number and then Snoop answered. And we talked for like over two hours. And that conversation, and in a way, this was also podcasting before podcasting, because it was just a conversation that I cut up into pieces and put out. It wasn't, I think the reason why my interviews became popular is because I wasn't the journalist. I just had conversations that made sense to fans and things that fans wanted to know. So I talked to him for two hours and from there on I had his number and we kept in contact and he continued to do interviews with me. When I finally moved to the U.S., he wanted to move to the U.S. He agreed to sign off on a recommendation letter to the U.S. Embassy for me to get my green card. And later even ended up signing to Empire and we put out two, three of his albums. So that's really like how everything came full circle. And he's been a constant figure of encouragement in my life. Like for as famous as he is and for as long as he's been famous, he's extremely down to earth and just has like appreciation for me that I don't really understand like why or where it came from, but it's just like, when my dad came to visit a few years ago, I took my dad to his studio and he hung out with my dad and was telling my dad how like my dad should be proud of me and how he's seen me like come up from being a little kid to doing this stuff. And a few weeks back when we lost one of our artists, Young Dolph, Snoop FaceTimed me that night and it was the night that his new album was coming out. And I thought he wanted to talk about the album or somebody FaceTimed me to just talk about what happened and give his condolences. And I'm quoting him and he said, he said, I brag about you all the time, Nima. Like I tell people I'm proud of you. And so it's a complete mindfuck to have gone from having this guy's posters on your walls and buying his CDs and 
dreaming about what it could be like one day to maybe talk to him or what you would say to him to now hearing him say that he brags about me. <laughs> to me, that's my favorite story of my life, probably like just everything about it. You know what I mean? I'm very proud of that and very humbled by it. I have no idea what the original question was, but now we're here. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I, you're, you're mentioning something so, so crucial. And for anyone listening, I really hope anyone gets that. It's really that aspect of you're so into something and you're just showing up. You don't necessarily know. You don't have a definite plan. You don't know if it's going to work. But you're like, the chances are, I feel like it sounds like the risk of not trying doesn't make sense. It's like, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I stay in front of that hotel? You know, like there is a chance that something happened. I have yeah. to take it. I never did any of it with the intention that it was going to make money or anything like that. It was just honestly very pure. And I think a lot of it was because of how young I was. Because as an adult, you might not do a lot of those same things. But because I was so young, I, I, I don't know. It's just, I think there's something a little more endearing about somebody young doing that than like a 40-year-old stalking you. <laughs> But I, I honestly say, and I say this anytime I talk to kids, anytime I talk to students, anytime somebody asks me for any kind of advice or asks me about my path, I always say, if I can give any advice, it's consistency and the pure, like showing up as half the battle is a very real thing. Because if you continuously do something, you not only get better at it, but other people fall off from it. So you automatically get ahead just by showing mm -hmm. up. And yeah. If you really find something that you like, just continuously doing something in it. I mean, if it's photography, I don't know if you would say the same thing about photography, but if you do something over and over and over again, chances are you're going to get further in it and you're going to become better at it. For sure. hundred percent the same. And I also have a few stories like that where, you know, where you go somewhere and you're like, I have no clue if it's going to work. Or you go on in one evening that makes zero sense. You go to a place. Mm -hmm. But that one thing brings out either a connection or something. And you were not planning for it. You're just trying to be like, this sounds like a fun thing to do because I'm so into that thing. It just sounds great. And yeah, you're right. It's uh, showing up. It's definitely half of the battle. I'm so curious. Before we, we dive into this age and what's happening with Empire and how you guys change things, or at least I want to understand how in details, was the website making money when you were like 16 or 17? And how did your parents react to that? It all happened at a time that was very turbulent at home. And it was in the middle of like, my parents had two year like separation, divorce, drama, battle. Like, I don't remember a lot of those times because I feel like my brain blurred it out. But yeah. I feel like they watched it all happen and I don't know to what extent they took it seriously or not. I don't think like they loved the fact that their son had an obsession with music that had so much topics of cursing and half naked women and violence. And I remember my grandma one time, my room was plastered in posters of rappers. My entire room, every piece, every centimeter of the wall was, was full of rappers. And, My grandma one time like looked around you. How come everyone on your wall is black? And why do they all <laughs> look like they're upset? She didn't even mean it in like a <laughs> racial kind of way. But if you come as a Persian grandma, you come to Germany to visit your your grandchild. And that's a legitimate question to ask. <laughs> For sure. And I think the, there were certain moments that happened where they were like, oh, wow, this is 
this is real. I mean, one of it can be some money. Like I started selling advertising on the website and like the first time that I got a couple of thousand dollars for like a banner. Cause at the time, like to do like the wire transfers and I had to ask them for all that. I didn't know how to do any, a lot of that stuff. And like, I made up how much I was charging. Like somebody would kind of label, would contact us and say, we want to run advertising on your website. Can you send us your rate card? I didn't have a rate card. We just made it up. I was yes, like, wait a minute. <laughs> you like, tried out numbers and see what did they go with. I would say if I said $500 and they were like, no problem, then in my head I was like, next time I can probably say a thousand. So until you find what's the sweet spot, like what, maybe I wasn't charging enough. Maybe I was charging too much. And I remember in like 2007, I got an email from Snoop's label at the time and they said Snoop's new album is coming out and he wants to make sure that we advertise on your website and we want to do a takeover for three months. And they said, how much will that be? And I was like, holy shit, this is the biggest like label at the time that had contacted me and it was for Snoop. I had no idea what to ask. So I said, 20,000. And they were like, we only have 11. I said, okay, I'll take 11. I, I got $11,000 at once. I was not even 18. I had never had a job, but all that money went towards my master's program. I have to say, looking back, I was still always the same like good kid that I grew up. I, even though I like dabbled in, 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 in a world that dealt with a lot of other stuff, for me, yeah, it wasn't like, oh, now I want to go do this, do that, go just party or whatever. Like, no, it was like, oh, yeah, that's good. Now I can probably pay for school. <laughs> and the website allowed me to not have to get a job. Like when everybody else started like bartending or working at a retail store or something, I've, to this day, I've never had a job. I've only had my website and now Empire. Now all I've ever done, I've never been in a job interview before in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> um, you should try it's really fun <laughs> so my, my parents I think they were always supportive of the music aspect of it they always were supportive of arts and music and stuff I think the first time that Snoop Dogg called the house and like my mom answered or something and then I told her who it was and I showed her the picture and she was like what is my son doing in there all day that like these people call here you know what I mean overall I have to say that they could have been a lot less supportive for what the situation was I'm very grateful of the support that they were able to give me. That's beautiful because the parents, I imagine in a way, the fact that they were deep into their own interrelationship, you know, during those years, allows also to, I mean, I see it, you know, we have a daughter. If we're like fighting or just arguing or discussing or thinking about our own shit together as a couple, then there's more space for the kid to be in a way on their own, you know, like less eyes on it. And it's not in a bad way, it's just how life works. So I imagine that kind of plays an interesting role in the whole story. And the fact that you have that support also, and I imagine like showing up for something, you know, it's not like you're smoking weed and doing nothing at all. Like your parents see, money comes in. So I imagine as a parent, that must be a little easier, even though you probably understand nothing. I remember listening to 50 cents in the car with my dad, like so many times. And I think until when I was really with Trina and I re-listened to those tracks, I never really heard the lyrics. I heard them, but I never listened. And I'm like, oh my God, if this had been in French in the car, my parents would have gone crazy. Like, why are you listening to this? This is terrible or whatever. And so that's something that's fascinating. And how was your experience of actually, because the rap world is very different. Actually, something you mentioned way earlier with MTV and the music videos, Something fascinating about the rap 
I don't know for you, but I always felt that there was more storytelling in those kind of music videos than there was in, let's say, a pop song or something that seemed more like surface level. Rap music has always been social commentary. Whether it's social commentary that's positive, negative, whatever it is, it's social commentary. Rap music is spoken word that's put over beats that talks about life experiences and things that people go through or experience or talk about or whatever it is. It's not manufactured. Like pop music and a lot of other genres are more manufactured. In that sense, rap music is more similar to like maybe what like certain like rock and metal bands would talk about back in the day where it had like a certain emotion, a certain anger. But since the very beginning, rap was always very political too. So it had a lot of different aspects to it. I think that was always popular in the mainstream sometimes is the stuff that's more centered around bitches, guns, whatever, because people just are drawn to that. Like humans have always been drawn to controversial stuff. People are always like mafia movies, action movies. We love the bad guy. We love to see like that stuff's always been exciting for human beings. You know what I mean? And I think rap music in a way, if you really think about it, like rap music, that's about guns and gangs and drugs and stuff like that. The same stuff that can get, you killed or put in jail, if you can talk about it and make it sound good over music, it can make you rich. And I think when you had artists coming out, when you had, you know, NWA first coming out with like, fuck the police, no one had ever said something like that on a song before. Now we're desensitized. Now everything's been said. We've seen everything. Fuck this, fuck that. There's nothing that can shock you anymore. You know what I mean? Like, Do you remember the French one, Nicolas Police? Oui, Nicolas Police. Oh my God, my whole family, like everyone in the circles were like, oh my God, this is so shocking. I remember it was like a huge drama. Yeah, now now with the internet and everything, like we feel like we're so desensitized because everything is out there. But like me as a kid, wow, you said fuck the police. I was always drawn to counterculture. I was always drawn to people that went against the grain. I was always drawn to people that questioned the status quo. I, I was always drawn to the underdog. I was always drawn to the part of the people that are underprivileged and learning about the imbalance in the world. And I was like 13, 14, fascinated by pimp culture and trying to understand pimping and being a prostitute, like the concept behind it, why and how. It was always interesting because one of the worst swear words in Farsi, it, it translated directly, it basically means pimp. And it's considered like a very low form of life. Like it's, it's, it's very bad, right? And then at the same time, you had the word pimp that when we were young, became this like cool thing. Pimp my ride. Pimp became like this cool dude because we had all these girls around him. Well, you're like, you got a lot of girls, or you're a pimp. So I always was like fascinated by this stuff. And I remember reading a book by Iceberg Slim called Pimp. And it was like, probably it's a very famous book. It's a very good book too. But about this very famous black pimp from like the 60s, 70s and stuff like that. I read books about all this kind of stuff. And I was in school in my literature studies and my presentation was about Monster Cody's book, who was like a very famous gangster from the Crip Gang who was in jail for years and wrote a book about it and stuff. So why exactly like I found my passion and that fascination in that, I don't know. But I know that it goes hand in hand with the idea of counterculture and trying to call out a lot of things that are wrong in society. But at the same time, that music is also fun. 
seeing half-naked girls dancing. It's not my world, but it attracted me for sure. And this, you know, the smoking weed. Anybody who says that Snoop and that whole generation didn't influence a lot of us to smoke weed is lying because they made that shit look so fucking cool. <laughs> oh my God. Like, I never got to weed personally until I was like maybe 18, 19. And, and that was just like, a joint and and that was that was it i i was never attracted to it just because of where i was but i remember like dr green thumb and the videos and everything and i had a friend who was like one of my best friends was growing like and it started like blowing up in his garage and his mom's like what are you doing like it's smelling so strong and it was like fascinating and he was also really into that that u.s rap culture u.s music so being against that counterculture how do you do you think that's also drove you to Empire and, and what happened? Maybe you can just speak a little bit about what Empire is and how it's different from maybe what exists until now. You know, Empire is Gazi's brainchild. Gazi is the founder and CEO of the company. And my mentor, probably one of the closest people in my life. Being from San Francisco, it's already a little bit different than most of the music industry that's centered around like LA, New York. He grew up, uh, San Francisco both always had a heavy tech influence from the Silicon Valley, but also a lot of independent influence just in music. The Bay Area used to have a huge music heritage in the 80s and 90s, and it wasn't until the 2000s that a lot of it like crumbled after the music industry kind of had its like dark moments. But then he also worked at Sun Microsystems. He worked at different like streaming companies early before the dot-com crash in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And then he got a degree in, what is it, radio and television or something like that. And has a very wide range of knowledge and experiences when it comes to music. And I was introduced to him when I was getting my master's. Same cousin of Snoop's that Snoop said he had heard about us through. I was on Skype with him one day when I was supposed to do my school internship and I was going to go to Warner in LA, Warner Music. I already had his internship secured and everything. And I was talking to Daz and he was like, you know, you should really talk to my man Gazi. He's in the Bay Area. He does a lot of independent music stuff. I think you guys will get along. So I got in contact with Gazi. And at the time, part of it was I would rather go to a smaller company because Gazi worked at a company called InGroove, the music distribution company that was based here in San Francisco. And the part of me was like, maybe I'll just have, I was worried about going to Warner and just being a typical intern, making coffee and like photocopies and stuff like that. And I was like, here, I have more of an opportunity of learning. I didn't know much about him. There was nothing about him on the internet. He was a very obscure person. And I spent the summer with him and we realized that we had a lot of interest in common, a lot of friends in common. And when I was going back for my last year of school, he said that he was going to be separating soon and starting something new and that he needed help. And he didn't have a salary for me yet. He didn't have anything to pay me yet, but he had an apartment in Embryville I could stay in. And I went back, I finished my master's. For me, it wasn't, it was a no brainer because worst case, I could have still went and got a job somewhere, but I had my degree. Worst case, I go back to Germany. I'll go somewhere else. But this was an opportunity for me to to try something. And at the time, I mean, not even my wildest dreams that I think that it could get to the place that it is now. Not even in my wildest. It never, never even occurred to me. But I finished my master's. And then I, when I went back, he had gotten the first office. And he had somebody that was cutting ringtones. And he had this girl, Christine, who was doing like administrative stuff. 
And when I moved, it wasn't like I just got a job and then I moved there. I was a kid. I, was, I just turned 23, just finished my master's, but I didn't know anything about living in America. I grew up in Germany. It was different here. So like when I landed, I didn't know what a social security number was. I didn't know any of this stuff. And the only person I had here was Gazi. So Gazi, while also being technically my boss at the time, became like a second dad in some ways where picking me up from the airport, taking me to the social security office, going to the bank, opening up my first bank account, going to the bed store, buying a bed frame, coming back to my apartment with me that he, the apartment that he had that he let me stay in, building the bed, bringing a TV. Like I was alone. I didn't have anybody. But for me, it was just a dream to be there. And he found somebody in me that was young, hungry, dedicated, and that made his dream my dream, which became our dream. And I found somebody in him that not only obviously had the talent and capability of doing what he does, but also the integrity as a person and the patience to grow, to see me grow because he saw what I could be. And also I think us, you know, he's Palestinian, I'm Persian, similar cultural values. There was something familiar we just trusted each other. To this day, it's been 12, over 12 years. I've never lied to this man. He's probably the only person in the world I've never lied to before. And there's just something very pure about the relationship. When he's like, I'm starting my own thing, what was the pitch like? At the other company, at Ingrid, the distribution company, he ran the urban department, but he also had his label there that he distributed a lot of artists through a lot of underground artists, a lot of things like that. He had a lot of relationships already. He was already pretty accomplished. And he was going to basically start Empire, continue to use in-groups to distribute, but just start to build our own thing. And the vision was to, the way the way Gazi always looked at it, he said, look, the music industry, music revenue is at an all-time low, but music consumption and entertainment are at an all-time high. Eventually, technology is going to fix piracy. He had this vision. He knew subscription services. Like he always said, in the future, music is going to be like TV. When you turn on your TV, you don't think about the fact that you're paying for cable. It feels free. You turn on the TV, you watch TV. But every month you're paying for it, right? Music is going to be the same thing. You're going to pay your 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever it is. But whenever you need music, it's at your disposal. Once access to legal music becomes easier than pirating it, it's going to start to fix itself. And that's effectively what happened little by little, right? There was a time where we used to go on YouTube and then have those YouTube downloader programs to turn the YouTube into MP3 so you could put it on your iPod, right? But when you have, when for the price of two oat milk lattes a month, access any song you want from your phone at any moment, then it starts to make a little bit more sense. And a lot of, Ghazi is somebody who, sees a few steps further than the average person. You know what I mean? When the pandemic started and everybody started to leave the big cities, it became apocalyptic. All these articles about, is this the end of the big cities as we know it? Blah, blah, blah. And I remember talking to him about it. There's this warrior. He was like, Nima, all these people are going to fucking Idaho and Montana and here and there. In a year, they're going to be sick of that shit. They're going to come back. And he was right. Everybody and I, now we're pretty much back to where we were. A lot of the people that were like, oh, I'm leaving the city. No, you're not. You, you'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't know, you don't know how to live in wilderness. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times he has that ability to see a little bit further. But I think for us, it was like I had a lot of relationships with artists. And up until music streaming, there was no place 
in the industry for anything other than artists that were potentially going to blow up or be failures. Either you blew up or you failed. But music streaming and this new economy created space for everything in between where you get paid for whatever people listen to. So the barrier of entry wasn't there anymore. Like back in the day, unless you were in the CD store, you weren't a real artist, like I was saying. So we would see all of these artists that I had relationships with from WCNN, artists that he had relationships with from all the work that he had done in the Bay Area and being in the studios, who didn't have big record deals, but who had a lot of music. And there was this was we were an outlet to help put that music out. And the vision was to be an alternative to what's out there, but we didn't. When I first moved here, I was like, okay, so I can start contacting a lot of the rappers that I knew from WCNN that didn't have deals and see if they want to put music out through us. Now, the first label ended up being TDE, which was Kendrick Lamar's label. He wasn't called Kendrick Lamar yet at the time. He was KDOT. He changed his name from KDOT to Kendrick Lamar, and we put out his first two albums. And Obviously, we didn't know he was going to become like arguably like the biggest rapper of his generation. Those were the little things that showed us like, oh shit, like we're close enough to this to where this could really work. And then having like a Snoop Dogg co-sign us early on and start to work with us, like that was huge. What do you think made them say yes besides the relationship? Because I imagine sometimes you might be competing with other people who might. It's very. I have a, I have an easy answer for that. The the, the 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 reason was that in the beginning, in the first couple of years. All of our deals were non-exclusive, meaning you're not tied to us. You can put something out, you could sign the deal with us, and then tomorrow decide, eh, I don't want to do anything. There was literally no obligation. You could put a song out and tomorrow say, I want to take it down. So there was really nothing to lose for them to try something out because, and then for a long time, for the first couple of years, What would happen is we would put something out and if it got a little bit bigger, somebody else would come and sign it and give them more money and they would leave. And that's what happened with Kendrick. That's what happened with Anderson. A lot of these guys were like, they would do two albums and then Dr. Dre would come or somebody else would come and be like, here's a big bag of money. But that was our way of entering the market where it was like, hey, we're not asking for anything. Let's put the Free 30 out. day subscription. <laughs> yeah, if you, yeah, exactly. If you like what we do, And keep putting music out, and if not, and then, and then we started getting to a place where we could give advances to artists and have budgets, and slowly evolve into a real label and music company that we are now. Because the company has never had outside investment; there has never been a dollar invested into the company from anybody. It's all like any money that's been spent is money that's been made. We don't have a board of directors. We don't have a parent company or anything like that. It's been a very gradual, fully bootstrap. I'm I'm just curious and for anyone not understanding, let's say, okay, you sign me, I put out my album with you. But now someone else comes and is like, hey, I want to buy out this artist or I, I want to sign him. Would they get the catalog that they put out with you also? So in the beginning, when we had all these non-exclusive deals, yeah, we could lose everything. And that happened a lot. We could lose all of it. Now, obviously, within the last years, like our deals are more robust and we're putting up more money, obviously we have a bigger, it's just different now. Like the way it works is usually your deals are for a certain number of years. You negotiate a license for five, 10, 20, whatever, whatever years you negotiate with the artist. And then until that time, you have exclusive rights over the content. As a, the label, you have exclusive right over all the content. And how does the artist get paid? Like, what is it defined? Is it like 
a percentage of that revenue or is it like a hundred percent of that revenue and you guys get a small cut or what, how does it work in, in the industry? Traditionally, major labels would take the large majority of it. Like in traditional deals, like the artist would get somewhere between 12 to 15%. If you're on a Universal, Sony, Warner or something like that, because I mean, back in the day it was a little bit more understandable because there was a lot more risk on the label, production, manufacturing, shipping, potential return. It was a little bit different. The problem with the major labels was that they didn't adjust their deals once technology changed the way things worked. And all of those deals, all the major label deals usually are in perpetuity. So I think we were one of the first companies and one of the, I think, groundbreaking things that we did was that all of our deals are in the artist's favor, percentage-wise. We don't have any deals where we take a larger cut than the artist. The bigger partnerships are 50-50 partnerships. A lot of times it's higher in the artist's favor depending on what the situation is. And our deals are more short-term. Like a major label deal, you sign for like five, six albums. With us, usually like two or three or something like that. But it's just a lot more flexible, and we provide a lot of transparency. The music industry is traditionally not transparent. You sign a deal, and then you don't really know what happens. We built a system that really treats artists like partners and there's full transparency. They have access to their accounting. They have access to their expenses. They have access to everything. So I think we had a lot of groundbreaking influence when it comes to that in the industry in a good way. That's something that struck me. I mean, obviously I'm biased because I knew you from a very long time. So it always felt different. But even when I looked at artists talking about Empire, It always felt good in the way it was being spoken about, even if you dig a little bit around it. It doesn't seem like that extraction mall that you yeah. could see with the old labels, for sure. I want to just switch gear like super on a different topic, but in the rap world, from what happened, you've lost some of your great artists of the past few years, which is super sad. We had Six Six Temptation. I'm kind of curious because you and I, we didn't grow up in that world of like where a lot of those artists come from. Is there something where the past comes up and interacts with the artists once they make it? Or how, how do you see it from your external point of view, from having been in a completely different environment you're growing up? I think it's a reflection of the times in general. I think you see more artists dying because there's a general, also more violence in general. And I think... A lot of it, like you said, has to do with the past. It can be, a lot of times it happens when artists go back to their hometown. You got to realize also, like, a lot of these artists come from nothing or come from very modest backgrounds. And maybe, unfortunately, a part of hip-hop culture has always been tied to materialistic boasting and showing what you have, but also not even just in hip-hop. When you come from nothing, a lot of times you, you define your value by being able to show what you have, right? If you never had anything and then you have a chain, that chain represents that you are, it gives you a certain value. And I think it's something that might be hard to understand for somebody who didn't come from it, but I've obviously spent so much time in this culture that I get it. It's a certain sense of self-value that you get from being able to afford things, the shiny things, the pretty things, the money, the jewelry, the cars, the lifestyle, the clothes. And then once you get to a certain level, you realize that really that doesn't really mean anything. But to get to that, it's not as easy to get to that. You know, when you, don't have, when you don't have anything, all that matters is having something. You know what I mean? And American society in general is centered around accumulation of wealth. 
everything in the world is about the hustle, hustle, more, more, more. What's next? You got this. What do you do next? What do you do next? And the people who follow a traditional path, you go to school, you get a job, you make some money, you get a raise, you get a little bit more of a raise. There's rarely these high ups and then lows, right? But in music and these things, sometimes you might have somebody who was down here on the street last year who now has millions how to deal with that, how to deal with it yourself, and also how to deal with the jealousy and envy that can come from the people from the people that were around you. That's not easy. I mean, it's gotten so much more extreme. I mean, when we were growing up, rappers had maybe one chain and a watch. Now, like, some of these guys are wearing millions of dollars on them at all times. Like, you might have a house on your wrist. To someone like my mom, she might look at it and be like, this is absurd. Why is he wearing two watches? But... To him, that's a symbol of how far he's made it. That's how you define yourself. Whether right or wrong, that's just the reality of it. And I think it's really unfortunate that I think it's the combination of the abundance of guns, which when COVID started, there was a huge rush to get more guns. So many, like, I think there's a lot more people that are armed now than there were armed before. I'm at a point now where I think I want to get a license and have a gun at home. And I've Never, ever thought about that. For me, it was the furthest. I never wanted to have a gun. But with everything that you hear and me becoming more high profile, it's like, if everybody else has a gun, why should I not be able to potentially protect myself? And I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but even those thoughts, you know what I mean? Yeah, just a discussion. The thought comes up, of course. So I think you have a lot more guns. You have a lot of young people with guns. And you have a society that's more split up than ever before. When COVID started, one of the first things I said was we're about to breed a lot of criminals because a lot of the people that were working in nightlife or doing certain things or whatever, all of a sudden you cut off their streams of revenue. What are they going to do? Then now with the vaccination rules, you're effectively disenfranchising the same part of the population because who's not getting vaccinated proportionately? A lot of the minorities that are more hesitant to get vaccinated, right? Whether right or wrong, a lot of it is you understand it when you look at some of the history that black people have had with vaccines in this country and things that have happened. But just in general, a lot of black, Latin, different minorities, they, they're disproportionately unvaccinated. And now you're saying you guys can't go back to work because you're not vaccinated. So you're only further dividing, I think, this, this society. And not to like say this is directly correlated to like rappers, but I think it's just the general climate that's very dangerous you have there's never been this little middle class i think you have a lot of people that are doing bad that are struggling and then you have portion that are doing so amazing because especially in rap music there's so many ways to make quick money right now even if you look at things like crypto and stuff like i know so many people that have become so rich in the last year just out of nowhere It's, it's just a crazy crazy climate and i think x died when they tried to rob him. He had a Louis bag with money and he was sitting in his IA BMW at a, at a motorcycle store in Broward County. Broward County is not a pretty place, but he's in a, he's in a very flashy car with a Louis Vuitton bag with 30,000 in cash in it. That creates a certain element where you have somebody who's like, I want to go get him. I want to go get that. You know what I mean? And unfortunately, a lot of these kids don't understand the value of life because they they grow up with death around them. Like a lot of these kids, when you talk to them, they're like, my uncle's been dying or going to jail like my whole life. 
Like I was talking to young Dolph's business partner, Daddy-O, after everything happened. And he was like, Nima, you got to understand, we didn't expect it to make it to 21. Like where we come from, you make it to 21, you did good in life because a lot of times you don't. So I think, unfortunately, human beings have the tendency of jealousy, but also human beings tend to boast and show off. And those two things together can be explosive and it's very tragic to see where, where things are at. And like, like you said, it's not something that I grew up in, but it's something that I have a lot of compassion for. It's something that the only way to look at it for me is that hopefully we're saving more lives. I, I have so many artists who say, hey, if it wasn't for you guys, I'd be dead or in jail. And those things are gratifying enough, but it's heartbreaking when things like that happen. Like well, our artist King Vaughn from Chicago got murdered last year and he got murdered. He was the, it was the week his album came out. He was number one on the charts. It was his big moment. He came from Chicago from terrible background. And he always talked about it. A lot of his music was about violence. A lot of his music was about the things that he's been around. He was walking out of a nightclub after his release party, saw another rapper that he had an issue with, punched him in the face, starts beating him. One of the guys that's with the other guy pulls out a gun and shoots him. Now, if the situation was reversed, maybe one of Bond's guys would have shot the other guy. In the street world, he did what he was supposed to do. He protected his assets. The other guy was the guy that's making their money that he's supposed to protect. So he technically did what he was supposed to do, playing by the rules that they play by, coming what they come from. We have someone here, I'm in Chicago, and we have someone here, and she actually witnessed a double murder in front of her car while driving in the south of Chicago. She was like going back up. She was really south by by the rough area. Well, south side of Chicago is a crazy, crazy place. I mean, I never watch the news ever. No, there's murders every day, bro. It's crazy. So in the summer, guys, if you don't know, in Chicago, we get about, I think it's per weekend, 30 to 50 dead by like guns or people who are reported being shot. And those numbers just don't even make sense because there would be one in France, in Paris, everyone would hear about it almost. So from my point of view, it's always like, whoa, what the heck? But it's interesting because you have those different aspects. And I imagine that through the relationship with your, you have with artists, I imagine that those discussions must come up. It hurts my heart that it's, inevitable part of our legacy at this point that's going to come up in these conversations. I, I hate it, but I understand it. You know what I mean? And then you have all these stupid ass little kids on the internet coming up with conspiracy theories, talking about empires killing their artists and kids trying to find explanations for things that they don't understand. And I get it, but it's just very hurtful because we spend a lot of time trying to help educate artists trying to help people move into a better situation and unfortunately sometimes your past can catch up to you sometimes it's just bad timing like when pop smoke when pop smoke the new york rapper got murdered he wasn't with empire but he got murdered beginning of last year the year before i can't remember but he had posted something on his instagram from stuff that he just bought or a delivery he got and his address was visible in the post and The guy who killed him, I think, was like 15, 16. He's a kid. You know what I mean? Over what? A couple of watches, some chains. That's crazy. I noticed a parallel. You got exposed to death through, and even those like high and lows, like extreme 
poor and extreme rich, you got exposed to it through the rap and the music. And it's fat. I can't help but notice that I got exposed to it through being an engineer in Nigeria, which is completely different, right? But I got sent, I was 22, 23, you know? I tell that story all the time about the guy that robbed you on your last day in Nigeria, your friend. Yeah, the, the cook. Yeah. Oh my God, it was hilarious. In a way, I still, it just makes me smile. The situation is just like, comical at one point because you built that relationship the guy's working with you like for a year and a half yeah from what i understand it was somebody that you became friends with you worked with him for a long time you were with him all the time and then on the day before you were leaving or something he robbed you or something like that yeah we were living a few like three four people in one apartment three four colleagues and there was a cook from benin and he had been there for a very long time he's been there super friendly always with us etc and one day we come back and we tried to open the door. I tried to open the door of my room and my door is locked. I'm like, I didn't lock my door. You know, that's, that's weird. And then my friend's door is locked and everything. And I enter and suddenly there is no suitcase. My laptop's gone. <laughs> my safe is open. We go to the other. Everyone's safe had been open. <laughs> he took my suitcase, put everything in it and then left. And, and then it was the weirdest thing. No one sees everything. They're like, no, we haven't seen anything. But in the background, what happened is that he managed to go back to Benin. That's the story we heard later. He supposedly managed to go back to Benin. And I don't care that he stole stuff. I just wanted my hard drive back. That's all I care. I'm like, yeah, take it. But apparently he went back to his village and people got envious or he didn't share with the right people whatever he took. And supposedly he got poisoned like three weeks after that oh, happened. Oh, shit. So Damn. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. And those stories, and I was in a different area in Nigeria. If I believed in karma, I would say that's karma, but I don't believe in karma. <laughs> yeah. And when I was in Port Harcourt and what you're saying with the guy with the BMW and like with cash and being in the US in rough areas, we would be in cars with a Mopal. You've seen them. You've been to Nigeria. The Mopal is the guy with the AK-47. It's like supposedly trained to be a security. They're not official police, but my understanding from the embassies, they have very limited training and most mm -hmm. of the time don't really know how to use properly some of the guns. Again, don't quote me on that. That's just what the embassy told me from a guy working in different conflicts around the world. He's not necessarily the best shooters that are with <laughs> you in the car. Right. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's very reassuring. Basically, we would be in, put in an environment in the slums and they would drive or drivers would try to push everyone that's working every day and that's like literally trying to make it through another day. They were trying to push all those people out of the road with two white young guys in it and the sirens and like literally slamming on other cars for them to move. And I was like, how are we not going to get killed? How are we not going to get Like, you know, how is the population not going to see us or want to, to do something? And obviously that happens sometimes, you know, those kidnappings or whatever. And I was like, the best way is just to be in like a random car and that's easier. And I was 22. I had no clue the world was like that. You know, I got, I got exposed to corruption from the guy who sweeps in front of your place to up to the president. Like the corruption was everywhere. Then you discover there's a whole world of prostitution that also touches people that you work with and that you know families of. And then you're like, whoa. So it was like a kind of life learning. And I, I can't help but see the parallel between those universes. I'm like, it's fascinating how it's parallel, but with... The world is a crazy place, man. And it's beautiful at the same time because it's so diverse and crazy. And there is, and to all that misery and difficulty, there is the same amount of beauty. So 
just yeah. a weird balance. Nima, I want to be super mindful of your time. I think we could go on for hours. I felt like we didn't even scratch the surface. Okay, can I just ask you, what is one thing that you learn in this music industry that you would actually take with you and apply to any other project that you would start that's non-music related? For me, this is the only thing I've ever really done. And it's interesting because like I said, I've never had a job interview myself, but I've interviewed and hired hundreds of people. And I've learned how to manage and run a company just by doing it and by using my gut and like just trying to be a good person. But I think if I would take anything and apply it to other industries, it would be to hire people based on ethics and character more so than based on skill set and mm -hmm. on what they know. I think it's easier to teach somebody how to do something than it is to teach them how to be. And I think that if you surround yourself with people of they're like-minded in the way that they look at the world and their priorities and their principles, that's how you can have an operation that's, that's healthy as opposed to trying to just get the quote-unquote best or most capable mm. or most connected people or whatever. A lot of the, when Empire started the first like four or five years of the company, no one that worked there had ever worked at a music company before. No, no, no one. One, we couldn't afford anyone because we couldn't really pay high <laughs> salaries. And two, it was also by design because we knew we were doing things a little bit differently and we didn't want people that had a preconceived notion of how things are supposed to be. A lot of the people that came in that are now pillars in the company and very capable music industry people started as a blank slate, but what we all shared was a common goal, a common passion, and also a common care for the art, the artist, and the music. So I think that if I was to go into another industry, and maybe I'd be wrong, maybe if I went into finance, personality doesn't fucking matter. Get somebody who knows how to make you some fucking money. Maybe that's why I'm not in finance. <laughs> but <laughs> I think just to live like a healthy life, I focus more on having people around me that share the same vision of the world as opposed to being the, the best or baddest. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's my answer. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see having a work with a wide range of people. Like, it doesn't matter how skilled they are. Like, if it just doesn't work, it doesn't work. That's awesome. Nima, I think those are great parting thoughts. Where should people find you? Where do you want to send them? Do you want to send them to a project or to your social media? Or My Instagram is Nima underscore Empire. N-I-M-A underscore E-N-P-I-R-E. -E. The label socials are all Empire. Instagram, Twitter, wherever, it's all at Empire. I, I do have one question for you before we go. I remember looking at your Instagram when you first started your little projects and you were doing your little vlogs and posts and you were getting like 100 likes and 73 likes and stuff. And then I don't think I looked at it for a long time. And then I went back on your page and I was like, this guy's getting like 30,000 likes on his pictures and there's like 200,000 followers. Was there like a moment, was there, something, was there like one post or something that you did that like it's made it explode or was it a very gradual thing or is it all fake and you bought all your followers? <laughs> okay, truth reveal, I bought every single one. They're all, ru they're all Russian boats all and Russian half of them boats. are like in Indian farms, you know, like bots. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, it's showing up. I showed up every single day for the past five years on YouTube with the videos. Put out probably 600 videos that got 
barely any in interesting views. I just did it for the fun. It's like you show up. Okay, I got 30 views. And after six months of doing daily videos, I was like, fuck, either I <laughs> quit because this is a fucking time waste or I start strategizing that or that I know how to fucking edit. I better there's something. Otherwise, I'm. It's this is just a waste of time. And over time, it, it grew. I think when you saw the jump was probably when I got to really get into the photography channel. And I found my niche there. I found my niche. I found my where I was like the happiest to to share stuff. I just send them to Instagram to look at the photos or like share stuff. And uh, and it's it's just over time. Honestly, that, like if you want a perfect example, and that's what I realized, you don't want to go viral. Like you just want to build over over time, like slowly yeah. and steady. It's so much better. I agree. I'd rather be. Bruce Lee than King Kong. I like to move with precision and gradual, gradually rather than just... Exactly, because once you're on the other side of the wall, you don't, you're not necessarily prepared for what's there. Right, <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Nima. Appreciate it. And I appreciate you having me. Let me know when this goes live so I can listen to it again. Yes. Before you go, quick question. Would you like to receive twice a month for free my top five email. It's an email that I craft with love and passion in which I share what inspired me recently, books and film that had an impact on me, but also things I've been thinking about, gear, tips and photos that I absolutely love. If that resonates with you, if you want to peek into that universe, please join thousands of other readers. Sign up for free at ptl.fm forward slash top five. That's ptl.fm forward slash top5. Thank you so much and have a beautiful day. Remember, try something different, try something new.